Hello, and welcome to another episode of Behind Startup Lines, the show where we dive into the mechanics of successful startups, featuring the perspectives of founders, operators, and investors. Joining me today is Ian Merritt, a trusted friend and mentor I've collaborated with for over a decade. Ian's insights are uniquely valuable. He's not only guided countless founders in scaling their ventures, but he has also walked the talk as a media entrepreneur himself. Ian is CEO and founder of Whitehorse Capital, an investment advisory boutique, and is also the driving force behind VenturePath, an exciting new entrepreneur community that empowers founders with knowledge, operational expertise, and crucially, access to capital. In this episode, Ian unpacks the art of fundraising. He offers invaluable advice on qualifying investors to ensure that they not only bring capital, but they also align with your ambitions. We'll delve into the time commitment required for fundraising and how to juggle this with the day-to-day operations, ensuring that you don't lose sight of customer engagement. Ian will also guide us through the types of meetings to expect and prep us for securing institutional investment from VCs. This is an episode loaded with actionable insight. So let's get right into it. Ian, welcome to Behind Startup Lines. Uh, it's really great to see you, mate. It's been a long time. We've been working together for a very long time. And uh, I'm very keen to talk to you today about your experiences, both at Whitehorse Capital and the new Venture Path, and how you're helping early stage businesses uh, grow and succeed. So welcome to the show today. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me on, Phil. Much appreciated. Good. Why don't we start a little bit uh, about your background and, and how you got here? Because I've known you from really my days in media, I think, is when we first met, would you believe over a decade ago? Uh, and you've had a very interesting background. You haven't changed a bit, Phil. Yeah. You came from what, music industry first to now helping startups get investment and, and grow. What's that journey been for you personally? Mm. Yeah, unusual. Probably not a not a typical journey. I mean, go right the way back. I, I uh, grew up in the Midlands. Um, I'm the youngest of six children in a single parent family, so that meant that life was uh, life was wasn't easy early doors. And uh, I knew from quite an early age that I was fairly entrepreneurial, and that was definitely a passion and something I followed as, as soon as I could. And I began apart from kind of school-based money-making ideas of um, all of the little wheezes you can you can imagine as a 13-year-old. Um, my first proper uh, foray into the wonderful world of entrepreneurialism was uh, I left the record label I was working for in the mid-90s, which was my first job, to set up my own uh, music PR firm. And from doing music PR, uh, which is basically breaking new artists, is, is getting uh, new talent uh, a chance and uh, using some of your credibility with, in that instance, journalists and DJs and uh, TV producers to, to get new, new artists uh, promoted. There is a link. If you describe it in that way, there is a link because that meant I ended up doing music PR, music management, artist management, uh, record promotion, music tours, that kind of stuff. And uh, you are constantly... Uh, coming up with new solutions to otherwise legacy solutions. So in that instance, it was in music. Um, when I got into music, I thought that it was going to be uh, lots of fun 
uh, you find that there's actually lots of work goes on behind the scenes um, for a sort of 90 minute uh, gig at the end. Um, and ultimately, though, I, I did have um, some success with some of the, the bands I was looking after and they kind of broke through and then you start making a bit of money. And I used that to launch a radio station in 1998, which is kind of a slightly unusual thing to do. But I, I could see that uh, there could be a link between breaking new music and having an, uh, an outlet to break new music. Um, we found that lots of, uh, lots of people who, who claim to be interested in, in breaking new things and supporting new things also like the reassurance that somebody else is doing it as well. Slightly contradictory. So by launching a radio station, there was quite a, an interesting story to be told about how you were one of the first. You didn't have to be the absolute first with crazy risk. You could be one of the first and other people like you were doing it. And that was how I, I sort of justified uh, plowing all the music money into launching a little radio station. And as soon as I got into running the radio station, it really stops being about music. That's one lucky person's job. And it starts to be about sales. And you're running a commercial radio station it is a sales operation, um, and uh, out of necessity, you know, my, my, my uh, backing was my own. I was backing myself. The funding was my own, my own cash. Out of necessity, you kind of got to get this business working, got to get it to break even, got to get it to profitability. At which point, the big radio groups came knocking and said, "How are you doing that? Because we've got loads of local radio stations. They don't make any money locally. They only make money from national sales." And uh, I used to share all my advice and tips around sales uh, with these big radio groups who would thank me and pay for my coffee. And uh, after a while, I thought I'm probably missing a trick here. And I, I wrote a book on uh, managing local commercial radio stations. And I used it as an operations manual. And I built a sales business uh, that managed the outsourced local ad sales for 16 radio stations. And that kind of really got me into the, the thick of Operating businesses, understanding P&Ls, running sales, running sales teams, uh, understanding the link between sales and marketing, um, which was absolutely our our saving grace, really, for, for running sales. We had to make sure that our brands were well known so that our clients wanted to be associated with them. And then the sales piece followed. Otherwise, you're, you're selling something no one's heard of, no one cares about. And again, some of these themes have definitely been transferable through the last uh, year, last 25 years or so of my career um the, the link just in conclusion between uh running radio stations was uh my radio stations uh saw some acquisition we, we took on some corporate venture funding and uh i ended up as part of my earn out working in a FTSE 100 uh big company um which i didn't love and as soon as i could i left uh which was about a year later and i did a buy and build so i i raised vc funding to acquire businesses in the media industry and make those businesses digital media companies. And I did that until 2007 when I sold uh, the bulk of that business to Egmont, the Scandinavian media company. And at some point in those media days, we probably were in our paths first crossed film. So the link, I would say, is the fact that you are always trying something new. You are leveraging existing relationships on behalf of new talent uh, to give it an opportunity uh, and... It was always something that required a, a degree of sales capability, whether you're selling an artist, selling a, a radio station's advertising, uh, selling a proposition to an investor. There was always a key sales piece uh, that sort of linked my, my, my career or hopefully begins to uh, hint at linking my, my disparate career. 
Right. And at what point then did you decide to go all in on helping early stage companies find the funding and, and solve those puzzles of what it takes to build a sustainable business? Well, having been through a few businesses by the time I, I sort of came up with my, uh, my, my good outcome, my, my proper trade sale, um, I didn't really want to go again, Phil. Mm. It was tiring. And this is in a time, this is 90, 96 mm. to 2007, right? So in that 11-year window, words like seed, accelerator, incubator, SEIS, uh, mentors, uh, Dragon's Den, uh, The Apprentice, just weren't part of yes. the, the language, weren't part of the lexicon. So because of that, it was always very hard, difficult, lonely, learning on the job. You're in a really tricky position. I know you'll you'll be very aware of this, Phil, that you're the CEO, you're the founder, and uh, you've got a team that look up to you, you've got a board that guide you, and you've got investors that have backed you, and you've got customers uh, whose business you're reliant upon, none of whom you mm. can say, do you know what, I'm having yes. a really bad day. <laughs> They're all expecting you to be the, the ultimate optimist and, and oracle. And uh, having got through three businesses to, to create a degree of, of wealth and freedom, uh, my, my view was I didn't want to go straight into trying to run another business. It's hard and difficult, particularly in those days. And I was really, really drawn to the phrase right. of become the change you seek in the world. And I thought, what would I do differently? And I'd figured out on exit that there are a whole load of things I'd have done differently whilst building a business. And my most useful transferable skills were in sales and in having understood and learned firsthand how to navigate the, the investment world. And I just thought, as I sort of took a, took a bit of a pause, a bit of a break from being at the front line, uh, I thought the bit that I could offer the world that would be a useful, uh, a useful addition was my experience of building a business through to exit and navigating mm. the investment journey along the way. And that became the focus of my next, my next uh, chapter of my life. And I co-founded Whitehorse Capital to be an investment and advisory business, working with founders to help them figure out some of their growth challenges and uh, unlock funding if they needed that. Um, I, 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 it kind of moved me into being an, an investor uh, and I've worked with a, with a great team of like-minded people to try and create this new intervention in the early early stage um, landscape of, of startup and scale-up business support before it was even called any of those things. Right. And of course, timing is everything. And you decided to do this on the brink of 2008, before the biggest crash in the market known to you know living people today. Um, what what happened? I mean, you, you set out on this journey and suddenly you've got this massive mountain to climb. Isn't it the, isn't it the, the, the Tyson quote? I might be misappropriating it, but it's uh, a plan's great until you get punched in the face. So uh, we, we had this uh, clear idea in, in the summer of 2008 of launching this shiny new investment firm that was able to operate at post-C, pre-series A, even if it didn't have those names then, it was kind of able to to write bigger checks than conventional angels, uh, but get involved before um, normal VCs uh, would typically get involved and provide a load of growth support to those companies. Uh, within We launched in September and later that month, Lehman Brothers crashed 
uh, and then that turned into a whole period of uncertainty um, and a credit crunch that became a recession. And uh, so to your point about timing being everything, um, yep, and that was a, a really good example of where timing definitely went against us. Uh, there were all of a sudden, the companies that were approaching us were not looking for a million pound of growth capital. They were looking for payroll this month because times were tough. And we said for a very long time, not what we do, not what we do. It's not our area of focus, not, not where we want to be positioned. And then you realize this change in the market isn't changing back anytime soon. And so by 2000 and, uh, early 2009, we got involved in that and fixing businesses. And fixing businesses is actually really, uh, really interesting. It's, it's hard work, but it's different terms for it. Turnaround work, corporate recovery, um, but basically you are fixing a business. And it is exactly like launching a startup, it, it's, except instead of having the already ridiculously short top period of time of you know, 12 months uh, of an opportunity to, to bring your idea to market and get the sales working to prove that it can, can function, and has a has a chance to grow. Instead of doing that in what's already a, a tight timescale of twelve months, you're, the ask is do all of that in twelve weeks because that's when we're going to go bust. That's when we're going to run out of cash. So you are creating new revenue lines, taking costs out, uh, looking after clients, figuring out how you can bridge a path through. Now that uh, appealed to me actually because uh, it's problem solving, something I I enjoy doing. Uh, it drew on all of all of my experience um, so it's kind of a really good way of, of keeping match fit keeping a hand in because you, you're looking at a business and assessing it from every every angle you know from the people to the sales strategy to uh, to the legal issues it might be facing to making sure you're on the right side of keeping businesses solvent um, and that was that was quite interesting the challenge I would say though is a big part of doing that work um, when it works, it's very rewarding. We kept all of the businesses that we, we worked with in 2009, we kept them alive, we, we got them through those difficult periods. Along the way, though, you're, you're not dealing with lots of um, fun, lots of great, sexy, amazing breakthroughs. You're dealing with keeping businesses alive. And that compounded is, is, is actually a little bit um, soul-destroying because you know, that means maybe making people... Uh, um, understand that their their skills are best placed elsewhere, which is kind of code for saying, you know, your skills are not welcome in this business anymore. The business can't afford you, your, your role's redundant. And that, that affects people's lives and uh, emotions. So ultimately, although it was definitely needed in 2009, it wasn't where the the biggest, um, the, the biggest uh, bit of attraction for me was in that. It, it's something you, you could do. And I think it's it's quite interesting now because actually... If you've done that kind of work of fixing businesses in an incredibly short amount of time, it really helps you assess the fundamentals of a business, which with an investor hat on um, is always really useful. And even to the work we do within VenturePath, we're sort of correcting businesses that have maybe got um, some, some small issues that need ironing out before they can go to market. You're assessing them in a way that an investor would assess them. You're trying to future proof them and give them the best chances of success. And these are all drawn from a combination of these different experiences over the years. Great. So where is Whitehorse Capital today then? You started out with that uh, turnaround task that was required back then. I take it you're doing 
different work today? What does it look like? Yeah, so we don't really do turnaround, and, and where we do, it's it's accidental. You might be working with a company, and then uh, their you know half a million pound R and D tax claim is is uh, brought in for questioning, and they've suddenly got a three month, six month hole in their cash flow. Um, in which case, we'll, we'll step in and and uh, help where we can. But that's not really the it's not really the focus, and that's really just kind of relationships with the founders that we know. Um, the mm-hmm. focus for Whitehorse Capital since about twenty sixteen has been helping companies to get ready for institutional fundraisers, Series A, Series B investors. And through that, we've built up uh, probably three concentric rings. We've built up a database of maybe 1,100 VCs across the UK and Europe who can invest in Series A and Series B rounds. We've built up a network of around 200 VCs that we've done deals with. um, And we have invited the uh, the front runners, the most active of those funds, um, representing about six billion of, of assets under management into the venture path community. So there's there's different tiers of relationships that have been built up over a very long time. Um, the advantage of those mm-hmm. relationships uh, being quite quite lengthy um, is that the junior people we met ten years ago are now managing partners, right? <laughs> Um, yes. that, that's helpful, yeah. that's it, that kind of works and so within Whitehorse Capital the focus there really is predominantly on um, capital raising uh, but the advisory to get businesses ready for that on a one-to-one basis Okay, so how are you evaluating the commercial viability of a startup today? What are the key indicators that you look for when working with businesses? Well, if we're looking at a sort of starting point of Series A, because I think there's a whole different set of challenges for for very early stage startups, which actually I'm, I'm, I might I might touch on because it helps sometimes identify the, the nuances. Startup phase precedes your idea, your MVP. You're, you're trying to get your your business uh, off the ground. Uh, that is about talking to customers or prospective customers and getting their feedback in a feedback loop um, for. Seven years, I, I was part of the, a team running the UK's first pre-accelerator program. And uh, within that initiative, we worked with something like 300 idea stage companies. At, 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 and I say companies probably in its, its broadest definition. You know, These are founders you're working with who are solopreneurs at this point. And the, mm-hmm. um, the challenge for those guys is get out of the room. Go and talk to customers. Go and get a feedback loop going. Don't build blindly before you've you've been informed by customers. Check that your customers' enthusiasm will convert to enthusiasm and a purchase order or a sale. And that's very early, very scrappy, and it's essentially just about being tuned into to what your customers need. As the business has progressed through seed stage, and uh, in my my previous role, I, I chaired a network of accelerators. Um, there's seventy programs delivered. And a thousand startups supported. Uh, those startups were predominantly at seed stage, and at seed stage, it was then about beginning to get the sales to to land from the same customer segment, to create a degree of repeatability, uh, to build out stickiness so that churn wasn't a massive problem. Uh, but you're still very scrappy up to that first million of revenue. It is yeah. often still founder-led sales. Uh, it's very, very flat sales structures. Everybody involved is doing a bit of everything. There's no huge degree of specialization. And uh, it's by any means necessary. That's what's happening at Seed. And uh, mm-hmm. the market begins to tell the story as to whether the the company, the entrepreneur, is onto something. Because if they aren't, they'll plateau at half a million 
750 of sales and that's as many uh, people that kind of want to buy that product and then maybe they get acquired by one of their customers and they become a function there. Um, if they right. can break past that point and funding, seed funding is part of that because it extends their runway, it enables them to hire in talent, it enables them to begin to understand mm -hmm. and think about their unit economics, their sales performance and then they begin to be on a path that could lead them to, to venture capital and a much more scalable business opportunity. And so though, though if you think pre-seed is about talking to customers, seed is about getting sales through the door by any means necessary to, to keep the lights on and, and begin to start evidencing that there is a commonality in the problem that you're solving and the customers that want to buy. Then the approach to Series A is the, the next stage of business maturity being added in. That's where the sales aspects become a little bit more predictable. There is a sales engine. You've given some thought or ideally uh, begun to put into place uh, more of more structure. Maybe there's an inbound function and an outbound function. There could be a customer success right. function now that begins to help the sales efforts be divided. Now, that might be as simply as uh, hunters and farmers. You know, We look after our customers once somebody else has found them and we can make sure they never churn and they'll constantly want to be uh, be willing to be upsold to as new products and services come online versus I like ringing up uh, cold prospects and getting them enthusiastic. I like meeting people out in the field and getting them uh, to the point that they are requesting a demo. So that degree of specialization mm -hmm. is absolutely something that really needs to be uh, underway before uh, a, a company can really think through their strategy to scale and the associated funding um, should they need external capital for that. And so then, uh, with a sort of VC's um, view on this, uh, the VCs have then got some proper data to begin to analyse. So does the story of your future sales plans, your um, forecast P&L, your growth trajectory, uh, does it match with the data that they can analyse for the first million quid of revenue, the first two million quid of revenue? Um, does it mean that the type of customers you're planning for are the same as the type of customers you've got today. Um, quite often we'll mm -hmm. see um, uh, startups that have bootstrapped their way to a million quid with, with SMEs as their clients, and their future strategy is all um, enterprise clients. Well, it's a massive leap of faith that you're asking your VC to take mm. that we can sell to a completely different um, target customer, completely different sales cycle, completely different procurement process, um, but give us the money and we'll go away and see if that, that guess is, is accurate. So removing those kind of additional unnecessary risks is is really an opportunity for founders to be able to talk confidently about how what they're asking VCs at Series A to do is more of the same. We want to turbocharge things that we've already tried and tested and know, know that they work, but we want them to be able to work in a way that um, can be scaled because we're not saying can we do something different we're saying can we do more of what we've been doing that we can now evidence is working and that proof point is really necessary because another distinction yet another distinction between seed and series a stage companies that sort of transition between startup and scale up is the fact that when you're uh, in the market raising investment at seed stage you're typically talking to your investor might be an angel, might be an angel in mm -hmm. a syndicate or a consortium. It might be a seed fund where you're going to meet a number of the team. Uh, but you're, uh, uh, once you're at the next stage, you're not. 
dealing with the ultimate decision maker. You're dealing with the gatekeepers in a process uh, that requires an evidence-based investment proposition being thoroughly stress tested and um, sensitized by a team of professionals working in a fund uh, where perhaps you may, mm. maybe never ever meet the the, the um, providers of the capital to that fund. It might be a pension fund, it might be a fund of funds, it could be a, another, right. another type of limited partner. So having the evidence, and that evidence is most pointed at the sales evidence and how the sales is going to grow within the business is absolutely essential because without that, you might have a great team, you might have a great product or, or service offering, uh, but if you can't talk uh, capably and competently to the whole sales direction of the business and link that back to what you've you've figured out already, you're going to create an easy opportunity for a VC to say, come back in six months, come back in 12 months, let's see how the sales plays right. out. Because why do they want to be inside your cap table taking that risk? When they can wait, remember their job is not to fund your business. The job is to pick winners for their fund. And sometimes entrepreneurs forget right. that and assume that there's sort of a degree of entitlement. That you know, well, I'm a, I need five million pound, and you're a provider of five million pound. Why aren't you writing your check? Um, whereas the reality there is, VCs are going to be very selective, and particularly at the moment, you know, we've just just come off the back of a, a strange and difficult last 12, 18 months of macroeconomic world issues. Uh, having those in mind means VCs are more cautious and the way to assuage some of that fear is definitely to have a very compelling sales and go to market proposition because ultimately a growing top line will paper over a lot of cracks or create the income to, to um, fund solutions for those cracks over time. Uh, whereas uh, a flat or low growth or poorly thought through sales strategy will see a business fail. There's, there's no way around it. Let's just unpack the, the statement you said uh, just shortly a moment ago that the mentality of founders is possibly, you know, you've got money, therefore you must be in the market to, to back or fund my business. But really, it's about picking winners for the fund. That's something I've not spoken to an investor about before. Um, is that prevalent with the with founders that you meet at, when they're ready to start getting institutional investment and and if they if it is common how do you help them realize they've got to shift their mindset so it is common uh and i think there's probably three stages of of realization um one is well we've we've met some vcs we've met some investors uh i even had an inbound the other day from somebody saying we like businesses in your sector can you send me your business plan we might be interested in investing so no. it's probably going to happen it's a foregone conclusion and it will be my our decision uh, if we want to take the money that then moves on to the aforementioned Mike Tyson punch in the face of um, potentially wasting six nine twelve months of their opportunity cost of running their business growing their sales building out brilliant teams sorting out fantastic partnerships uh, innovating with their their product offering all of those key things that they could otherwise be doing uh, start to get eaten up by taking uh, meetings with poorly qualified investors, investors who are using a meeting with a founder as a proxy for learning about a, a market or a sector. Are we doing interesting things in AI? Yeah, my boss has been talking about AI. Why don't you come in and tell me about your AI business? Right. Which the founder here is, yeah. leading VC has invited me in because they're, they're keen on our AI. Um, after those uh, meetings, the first sort of blushes of, of youth have gone past of those meetings, quite often what you'll then see is, well, we knew lots of investors, we've had lots of meetings, 
the investors seem interested in us, but, but no one's investing. No one's offered us a term sheet. And that piece is kind of where it gets really difficult because there's a massive distinction, sometimes not always uh, clearly uh, acknowledged or identified at front by uh, founders of, is that investor interested in your business? Well, investors typically are bright people with a good knowledge of what's going on across the tech landscape. Um, so why wouldn't they be interested in your business? Why wouldn't they want to spend their time talking to bright, driven, ambitious entrepreneurs? It's a lovely perk of their job. But being interested in your business is not the same as being interested in investing in your business. Investing in your business. And yeah. so that's the third realisation is once you've moved from it's going to be easy and I've got loads of inbounds to I've started to meet them and they're, they're taking up lots of time and I've told them lots about the market and the sector and our competitors and a competitive differentiation in the landscape, but we didn't get a term sheet. It then falls into the third category of realisation, which is where founders think, so therefore I need to maybe better talk their language. I maybe want to cut out some of the conversations with tyre kickers with people who are never going to invest in my business either because it doesn't match their thesis it's not the right stage it's not the right geography it's not the right risk profile and all of those qualifying criteria or, or arguably disqualifying criteria are part of a pretty steep and painful learning curve for a founder now from a, a sort of day job perspective this has been part of the problem we've been solving uh, for the last few years within Whitehorse Capital of saying that there's a whole load of investors we could go and see. There's probably these 10 that are likely to invest based on the conditions, based on the match to their thesis, mm -hmm. based on the risk profile, based on the likely exit multiple we're going to be able to extract from this business in five years from now. And that means you can absolutely shrink the amount of distraction and disruption to your business. And within the Venture Path community, we've tried to make that a rolling process so that you're not running a business stopping running a business on a treadmill to go and raise some funding raising some funding and then uh banking the cash and back into running your business but actually it can be more of a sort of blended uh um progression as you're building your business doing things that you know are going to move the needle for a vc assessing your business in due course and making sure when you do go out you're going out to the right people with a series of warm carefully curated uh relationships that you're leveraging rather than cold pitching and essentially educating a VC at the expense of running your business. It sounds like then qualification or disqualification of investors is an important skill for founders to develop in the same way it is for sales to qualify the customer need and that you can meet it. What are some of the questions that founders can ask uh, investors when they come knocking to see if they're serious? Yeah, I, I completely agree with the uh, with the view that a quick no is much better than a long maybe. Yeah. I mean, a quick yes would be lovely as well, right? We'd all take a quick yes, whether it's a sale or it's an investment conversation. But a, a quick no, this isn't for us, but maybe you might want to go and speak to these people or it isn't for us yet. If you can achieve these milestones, then we might be interested, um, is much better than, than being, um, uh, being left waiting for a long time or being asked to jump through hoops that seem to never end or being stuck in a horrible disclosure loop of more information requests, more information requests, more information requests without the comfort of a of visibility of a term sheet. So two things uh, I would suggest that founders can do if they're in that situation. Uh, firstly, is um, qualify 
the VC, ask qualifying questions. You know, you've asked for a meeting. Uh, uh, is a business in our sector at this stage a fit with your investment narrative, your investment process, your investment thesis? Um, the opportunity then is for the, the VC to say, well, no, not really. But I'm quite interested in the sector and uh, I'm happy to give you a bit of uh, useful critique. Well, that's fine. You might still want to take that meeting, right? You're building a relationship. You might get an onward referral to a better matched VC and having a VC's feedback on it while you're not burning an actual lead, a, a real investor, might be something you're open to. However, um, by qualifying that question, you now know whether you're going there for a friendly rehearsal or you're going there to pitch for £5 million. And that's quite a useful thing that you can ask quite early right. on. I think there's a tendency uh, with founders to be um overly inawed, enamored, uh respectful, fearful of VCs. It's another category of beast that they've maybe not dealt with before. Um, they've built out relationships with angels as people, they've built out a team, they've built out relationship with customers. Now there's this new thing, a venture capital firm, a VC, you know, what are they like? Who are these people? And I, I read on their website, they've got a billion pound of assets under management. I don't know anybody else with a billion pounds. You know, how approachable are these guys? Um, yeah. It can lead yes. the founders to be the wrong side of a balance of power. So there's a, uh, there can be a tendency to be overly reverential. And I don't mean that in any way to be disrespectful of my VC colleagues, but uh, they are people in a job. As is a, a CEO, entrepreneur, founder is a person in a job. So you can cut to the chase by asking questions that say, are there examples in your current portfolio of businesses that you've invested in at our stage? Now, that is a polite question with a pretty binary answer. Right? The answer is either yes, we have invested in companies at your stage and we like your sector. It's a sector of interest for our fund. OK, or no, we haven't, but we we typically invest when they're doing two or three million. But we can see that you're growing and we'd like to get you on our radar. Now, that is a very simple question. No one's offended by it. But you now know whether you're pitching these VCs now for cash or you're opening a relationship up for a conversation in 12, 18 months. Now, no one is, is shocked or saddened to be asked that question. It's not rude. Uh, it's part of their job. Now, this is like the best analogy I can give you, Phil, is if you're buying a house. Uh, if if uh, I was buying a house from you directly, the seller, um, I would probably not say, good grief, who put these terrible chintzy curtains in? And that tiny kitchen looks dreadful. Could we knock this wall through and make that much better? It would be a much better use of the space. And the garden, I can't believe they've crazy paved it. I'd rip all of that out. It's dreadful. Uh, you could say all of that to the estate agent. And the estate agent would say, the cost of knocking that petition wall down is going to be £1,000. Uh, crazy paving the gar garden, rip it all out. It's a weekend's work. And you've probably already added 25 grand worth of value to the house because it's got more curb appeal. Crazy example, I know. Bear with me. Mm. Right? This is no different uh, to uh, the conversation with a VC. Now, if your experiences you've raised from angels, it's the same as having a rude conversation with the homeowner. Yeah, I don't like your taste and I'm going to be knocking this down. Um, so you wouldn't ask that question. But the VC's role is different. It is more akin to they've got a job to do on behalf of somebody else like an estate agent selling a house on behalf of the vendor. So in that scenario, saying to them, uh, what's the catchment area to good schools is, is not a rude question. Saying to them, how much would it cost to bulldoze the garages and stick in a uh, granny annex? 
Uh, it, no one's offended by that. And it's the same as the fact that you wouldn't ask those questions of, a, of an angel. How much money have you got? Are you actually going to invest in my round? Who else can I talk to who, who would say you're a good investor? But you can say that to a body corporate, a, a corporate entity, a VC firm, because the people work there are good, usually good, um, well-meaning people who are interested in helping entrepreneurs and helping them on their journey. So you're asking a series of qualifying questions about, are we a good fit? Is this something you're considering from your current fund? Where are you in the in the fund cycle? A fund has a beginning period where it invests heavily in higher risk, uh, longer term things. It has a middle period where it's maybe beginning to uh, double down on the successes. It's considering where to follow on. And then it has an end bit where, as well as follow on, it's also considering using up the leftovers of the cash. Now, that means depending on where they are in the cycle, depending on when their next fund is being raised, has an impact on whether they're going to write a million or five million in the round. Are they doing the last million to top up and they, right. they're getting a, a position in your business? Uh, are they leading the five million and with the hopes of putting the next 10 in? And all of these questions you can absolutely ask. They are um, entry level um, questions that almost everybody in a VC firm from the uh, managing partner to the junior associate will be able to answer. I would probably not waste your time answering, asking those questions of the managing partner because you can educate yourself uh, lower down the stack mm. um, because those answers are consistent and it is the story that the VC has told its investors we're going to invest in companies at this stage uh, with these um, criteria with, uh, with these conditions of growth with these likely returns so there's no surprises there and asking those questions is a really good qualifier because otherwise you'll fill your months up with meeting after meeting after meeting with VCs and you'll think you're doing a great job the only person who's getting paid to uh, be in that room as a VC talking to an entrepreneur is the VC. Right? You're losing money being in that room. Uh, so yes. get working out which rooms to be in and only being in them with a degree of, of qualification is hugely useful. Yeah, a lot of uh, founders that uh, I've worked with over the years, I think they under underestimate the amount of time it takes to go through that process uh, of raising fu funding and also the importance of relationships. You touched on it a little bit there, and I'd, I'd like to dive deeper in on this idea that you know it's not just about getting out there and talking to the market, but it's about finding the right kind of investment and the right kind of partnership. Is is that something that you've been able to help startup founders with, th either through Venture Path or through Whitehorse? And, well, and what advice have you got for founders that have been taken away from the coalface? to do this okay so two questions in there you might have to keep me honest and remind me of them but the, the the last one what do we do with founders who've been taken away from the coalface so you are maybe currently in a fundraising process and because of that it's been a little while since you've looked at the business properly right you are out kissing frogs yes. uh you're out juggling information requests um and maybe to help illustrate this if i walk you through the fastest approach you'll understand a little bit more about the amount of work that's involved because for founders who are new to an institutional fundraise you don't know what you don't know right you know your your angel round came together relatively easy you you, you mm. knew you, you knew that your old boss always said you know if ever you were raising give me a shout i'm good for a bit of cash uh you you've met some angels they really like the business or somebody in your industry sold a business and agreed to put in some cash and join you as a chair and he invited a couple of his friends or she invited a couple of her friends uh, and your round came together. Now, the VC round is quite different. Um, you will 
typically have to get through a gauntlet of maybe five meetings per VC. They usually look like three all-hands meetings. Uh, a first one is the pitch of the company, mm -hmm. uh, what it is we're doing, where we came from, what gave us our strategic insights, uh, what the bright, rosy uh, picture of the future will be once our business is, is operating at scale, and a little bit of an introduction by the fund on we love to back businesses in, in your space and in we've got a great track record of doing it and we're a hugely value-adding VC. So that's all friendly kind of stuff needs to happen. The second meeting uh, will usually be a, a bigger deep dive. So now, you know, we're, we're interested. We kind of like what you're doing. We're a little bit worried about your client concentration. You've got one dominant client who was your first client who's currently 50% of your order book. Um, is the future more of these uh, whale clients or is the future the other 50% of uh, SME clients or, or mid-tier enterprise clients or whatever it may be? Um, and also, uh, we've got some questions about um, the unit economics, because your margin has fluctuated over the last 12, 18 months. Can you talk us through that? So you're now into real detail. And th usually at this stage, that will spin out two ancillary meetings, uh, a product demo, sort of tech roadmap, uh, you know, where we are, how it all works. Um, and that might not be everybody, but it might be you know, your CTO if, you, if you're lucky enough to have one. Um, and maybe particularly technically minded members of the VC firm or their external consultants that they, they ask to check over things for them. Um, and alongside that, the other ancillary meeting is usually a, a commercial deep dive. So a walkthrough of the sales pipeline, discussion around the percentage weighting of prospects, uh, an analysis of your the, the robustness of your CRM systems, etc. Um, and then we go to the back up to the top level of a sort of all hands meeting is uh, your third meeting is look we like it but we don't like the valuation or we like it but we're only going to follow on this round we're not going to lead or we mm -hmm. like it we're going to lead we're happy to do it solus but we recommend that you bring in a new uh, chairman and we think that that would be a condition um, of our investment so you're into the real detail of the negotiation now that assumes everything goes perfectly well uh, there are five meetings now if any of those meetings create any friction any Think that needs further clarification, any further qu queries, there will easily be follow-up sessions on, on those. Yeah? So we noticed that your chief revenue yes. officer left in the last quarter. What, what was the reason for that? Is it that they don't believe your numbers? Can we, can we look at your forecast pre and, and post their, their, um, their decision to leave the business? Uh, actually, can we talk now through in a bit more detail your hiring plans for how you're going to uh, newly resource that role having lost a key member in that function so that is now a business specific question that has triggered another hour long meeting maybe longer and so your five six stage meetings and you think okay well i can manage that except for the fact that you might have to do that level of uh, meetings with at least the the first stage meetings and possibly second with 30 or 40 vcs and then uh, those the depth of those meetings, the second stage meeting, the ancillary meetings, the negotiation might still be if you've got good competitive tension, you've got uh, good interest in the round, which is where you absolutely want to be. You could still be in a situation where you've got th that level of uh, detailed analysis and information gathering by interested VCs with four or five VC firms. And they'll all, all be asking the same kind of questions, but they'll be asking them with slight nuances. So you'll be answering the same questions, but tweaked answers. That's hugely, hugely time consuming. And all of this is whilst trying mm -hmm. to run the process 
uh, trying to keep the VCs enthused, energised, drip feed good news. You know, we did manage to hire that new CRO and, and she started last Monday and she's great. We'd love you to meet her. Uh, we won that new client. We won an award. You know, we've just picked up this great channel relationship. All of that stuff is huge. It's a huge amount of work. And so if you are uh, trying to run that process, two tips. Uh, one, don't. <laughs> don't try and run a process and run a business independently on your own. There's, it, it's really, really hard and difficult. And you're probably not doing either of those um, roles, uh, the, the service that you could be doing if you're able to focus on them. Um, secondly... Uh, so that might look like uh, that might look like outsourcing bits of it, and that's where you know Whitehorse Capital and VenturePath come in. It's it's a it's a warm uh, set of relationships with people that you know who can help you unlock these doors and, and run a process for you that's that's highly accountable. Um, the alternative, rather than that just being too self-serving, is you can outsource internally as well. So how have you divided this up? Have you made sure that sales are in uh, a reliable pair of hands from within the team? So that if you're not able to focus on the commercial activities you were doing because you're buried in negotiating term sheets, uh, that sales aren't going to fall off a cliff or plateau or or uh, or, or yeah. bump along, you know, on a pretty flat growth basis, which can be a, a real turnoff for a VC. It's a real deal killer. It's flat growth, low growth, particularly at the moment in time where they're making their investment decision. Um, so see what you can outsource and it might not be sales maybe you have to keep a hand in on sales but you can lean on your finance function a bit more to help with the, the forecasting it might be that the bit that you need to release is product and you've just got to empower your CTO to crack on you know and your, your input into product if you're a tech founder uh, might become a little bit more arm's length for the three to six months that you're in this process I say three to six months because those five, six stage meetings are probably going to happen over a six to eight week period. You're then going to have a little bit of back and forth around the negotiation with your advisors, with lawyers, or or having input into the terms that are being negotiated. You're then probably going to have to get it agreed and approved by your existing board or cap table, your previous investors if you've if you've had previous investment. Um, so you're easily into two to three months from the point you went out to market to the point you've signed a term sheet. In every term sheet will be a period of exclusivity. Minimum you might see is 30 days, maximum 120 days, average probably 45 to 60 days of exclusivity for the VCs to do their due diligence. And remember, that's across a whole range of areas, HR, uh, operational due diligence, technical, legal, commercial, financial, data, um, and other things that might be unique to your business. And some of that due diligence is done in-house by the VCs, so that can be quite quick. Uh, some of it is external consultants they're yet to hire. So that's why they'll then take two or three months doing their due diligence. And whilst that due diligence, deep deep dive research into checking everything you've said is true and can be proven, uh, whilst that due diligence is underway, uh, you're also negotiating the long form legal documents. Now, these might run to 100 pages, an investment agreement, subscription agreement, shareholder agreements, changes to the company's memorandum and articles of association. It's pretty chunky stuff. And you're, you're, if you're doing this on your own, one, you've got the distraction to your business. And two, you're learning a new craft on the go in a, I'm not going to say adversarial mm -hmm. relationship, but certainly one where there are two sides protecting their own interests to an extent. Yeah, high stakes. Yeah, yeah. Well, the people sat opposite, you do this for a living. They've done 10 of these deals this year. 
right? So you're going to do one Series mm. A in your life, maybe two, yes. if, if you're a serial entrepreneur, maybe three. And now you're into a short list of 10, 15 founders in the UK that have gone through three serial uh, um, uh, business launches with Series A investment. So something that you're going to do infrequently why would you why would you do that all on your own? How do you think you're going to get the best results figuring it out on the fly, sat in front of a VC trying to understand their language, their process, their methodology, um, all of these things that, that just, it always baffles me why founders think that that's a good use of their time. And what we tend to see quite a lot of is returning founders, second time founders saying, hi, we need your support because I don't want to be doing all of that on my own again. I've got a business to run. Yes. And this leads nicely into really your vision behind VenturePath to help businesses achieve this. Tell us a bit about that community and what it's trying to achieve. Well, I think from what you've, you've heard, the fundraising has typically been distracting, disruptive, time-consuming, painful. It's not, it's not a good thing. It's, it's an inefficient business model that's been in operation for 30 or 40 years right so it's still kind of a relatively early industry uh it hasn't been perfectly digitally disrupted um and the legacy way of of going about raising funds is something that is has definitely got a lot of room for improvement it is painful and inefficient it's a bad use of a lot of clever people's time and uh it can be pretty soul-destroying for a founder who's trying to run a business whilst they're getting knocked back by VCs or given conflicting feedback, we think you should do more productization or we think you should do less productization. Well, we think you should focus and double down on your mm. UK expansion plans. We think we should, you should open a remote office in the Far East. <laughs> it's really confusing for founders to hear that conflicting advice uh, from people who in their mind are top of their game. Right? You're only sat in front of a VC because you're going to assume that they're good and value adding and they know what they're talking about. So then... Um, that is the challenge that we... Even if they've never actually done the job themselves, because there's a lot of VCs that have never actually worked in an oper as an operator. Unfortunately, uh, they are the gatekeeper to your 5 million quid that you need to grow your business to the next stage that you can absolutely mm. see. Uh, if you could grow it organically, you wouldn't be wasting your time in front of them. So there's a degree that you have to yes. respect the, uh, the VC, almost irrespective of their background. Um, and, and there's a little bit of dance in the dance there. Now, uh, you know, fantastic. If you end up in front of an ex-operator, yes. an exited entrepreneur who's now launched a fund, phenomenal. There's not that many of those. Right? It's improving in the UK over the last 10 years. There's yes. definitely been some, some good improvement on that front. But it's, this is, a, this, this is a, something that will continue to roll for a, for a long period of time. You know, the, the US has got an absolute steal on this with serial entrepreneurs actively involved in funds. But they're... they're entrepreneurial and venture ecosystem has got a 20 30 year lead on us now they got there sooner uh, we can learn from it yes. but it does mean that irrespective of who's sat opposite you whether they're an ex-accountant or an ex-entrepreneur um, the conditions for approaching them and raising your funds and uh, going through the lengthy process and the the inherent distraction to your business that that, that can create is is the norm that is the way that works with venture path that is basically the mission we're on, is to break that cycle. Our view is that founders are where the value is. Um, that's not just our view, that is a fact. Right? VC industry does not get its returns. The investors in the in venture uh, sector 
do not make money, do not uh, increase their allocation of assets to the venture class until founders have delivered on their promises. Right? So this is about founders. So we've built within hmm. VenturePath four concentric layers. To aid my memory, uh, they all begin with C. So at the heart of that is community, and that is founder to founders talking to each other. Founders at the same stage, they're all one to 10 million revenue, uh, UK tech businesses, predominantly B2B. Their revenue might be higher if they're a marketplace business, in which case we calculate it on net revenue. So they're all going through similar growing pains. Uh, they're all active in the market. They're all aware of the same micro and macroeconomic issues that they're all facing. So you're not learning from somebody purely who did it 30 years ago in a different market. Right. Uh, that's that's absolutely the, the right. core. And then around that community of founders, we have wrapped these extra layers of support. So the first one is content. And this is basically leadership learning. And it is helping you shortcut the stuff you really need to know as you're scaling from one to 10 million, as you're approaching series A or series B investment stage and how within that you can be as ready as possible. You can reduce the amount of surprises you're going to come across. You can um, prepare your business as, as part of business as usual over the next three, six, nine, 12 months, not stop what you're doing and wish you'd done something differently six months ago because it's now impacting your fundraising plans. So that content covers all of the key growth and investment topics for that stage. And we deliver it through both digital kind of evergreen content, a, a bank of 100 video, um, video modules that you can kind of watch on any point through to live and interactive webinars and then obviously physical events that run every month uh, where you can get answers that are very, very targeted at your business from the experts uh, involved in the community. Which brings me to the third C, which is connections. And all of the connections are scale-up experts. They've all been vouched for and vetted by founders in the community. So uh, it is not, uh, can I find a CFO or an interim CFO or a fractional CFO? I'll, where do I go? I'll go to Google. I'll ring some friends up. I will hunt around online. It's the, the fact that you can say, well, actually, within this community, there are a handful of fractional CFOs. I need one right now to get me ready for the Series A or Series B or whatever the other liquidity moment there is. Um, and uh, with that in mind, I'm going to hunt in this pool because I know that all of these guys are uh, vouched for and vetted by founders in my stage. It then makes it very easy for a founder to say, hey, Phil, you're the founder who recommended Jenny, the CFO. Any good? This is what we're trying to do. Do you think she'd be all right at that? And uh, mm. what does she do for you? She does a day a week. You know, she got capacity, do you know, for the other days of the week. Could she do a day for us? Um, those kind of conversations just shortcut uh, the ability to make fast progression in your business from people who've been there and done it before. Now, Phil, you'll be very aware of this because you are one of our scale-up experts. This is, you know, an absolutely uh, great role for you because you've got huge experience about getting companies ready for uh, driving massive impact to their sales efforts as they go through moments of change, such as a Series A or Series B fundraise, where they're suddenly going to be turbocharging their own efforts. And so it's that caliber of, of expertise that is available to you, but vetted. And then the final C, to end my alliteration, is capital. And we, we know that if the founders are, are the core to this, then the other um, protagonists in this historically dysfunctional um, negotiation of the VC community. Uh, we've shared our vision for uh, VenturePath with VCs on the basis that something that becomes a rolling programme of support with uh, ongoing and on-demand access to 
the right amounts of, of expertise uh, injected into the business at the right time uh, is something that could change the uh, transactional process of approaching VCs for funding. And some of the UK's leading VCs instantly stepped forward and said, yes, please. So Octopus, Amadeus, Albion, Foresight, you know, good brand name VCs, over £6 billion worth of, of dry powder venture capital. So not their real estate funds, not their private equity funds, but the venture end of what they do is over £6 billion. And those guys are actively involved in the content, in the events, and they are available to the community to, to be spoken to in a non-pitch capacity. And that's really, really important because it breaks the transactional nature of otherwise raising funds. If I am debating the question, do I raise a million quid at a, a sensible valuation, quick and easy from my cap table, and uh, just extend my runway because I know I'll close these key clients in the next six months, which will improve my MRR and improve my valuation. Or because I now know that I'm, I've got the ability to close these clients uh, in the next six months, should I be doubling down on this with a £10 million growth capital injection right now? And uh, if I was going to raise £10 million, my valuation would have to go up. So I probably need to link that to the plans of uh, when I'm going to be closing clients, so I'm in market as the pipeline's converting. And if I was going to raise a bigger amount of funding, I'd turbocharge my UK operations, but I'd probably also start with uh, some international expansion. And I know that we've already got demand from the Nordic, Scandinavia, from Singapore. So we might put a branch office out there. Um, now, that is a perfectly valid set of questions in a founder's head as you're building your business plan, right? Um, unfortunately, if you sit in front of a VC in a pitch meeting and the VC says to you, how much are you raising and what's it for? And you say, well, we're going to raise between one and 10 million for business as usual or a Singapore branch office and huge growth. And our valuation is either 10 million flattish round on our, our last round or a 30 million pre-money. VC is going to say, oh, that's really interesting. I tell you, what, why don't you go away and think about uh, what you actually want and come back when you figured some of this stuff out? Now, that conversation six months earlier over coffee and croissants right. hosted by VenturePath is a much easier conversation. You know, We've got an interesting moment of uh, growth ahead of us. We know we're going to be, need to prove some things, but we think as soon as they begin to be proven, we're ahead of the curve because that's the way the market's going and that's our opportunity. What do you think? Should we raise one and ten? Uh, your VC at that point saying, I'll tell you what, land the first client, I'll write you a cheque for three with an offer of seven if you land the next three clients. And we might be your investor of choice. At which point right. you're tracking each other, you're building that relationship, you're nurturing uh, the human aspects of that for the next three, six months. You see how at the end of that, it's a conversation. It's a, it's a relationship-led, warm conversation rather than rock up at a pitch and say, hi, my name's Ian, let me tell you about my business. Um, and you know, ultimately with an ask of X million pounds, right. it may or may not be the right amount. So that's the, that's the break in the uh, venture world that we're, we're trying to resolve. And I think from our experience of fixing problems in the, you know, with companies that needed problems fixing, our experience of, of helping to create the startup ecosystem efficiency and collaboration uh, with our startup accelerators and seed funds over the last sort of 12, 13 years, and our experience of working closely with venture capital investors to make sure they get what they need from a deal as well as the founders, all kind of sets the scenes for how this as a community, as an ecosystem play, 
it has got the opportunity to give the UK a bit of an advantage by making the path through venture Series A, Series B less brutal, less disruptive, less damaging to the productivity of the underlying businesses that are approaching it. And do you have any uh, examples because the the community is relatively new, I think what six months yep. now. Uh, any examples of where bringing all that together has either significantly impacted a startup's trajectory? Could you just share a few of those success stories? So the honest answer to that is no, no, we can't yet. Uh, the verdict is out. So this is a new initiative and it takes time to do this we provide quarterly growth reviews growth diagnostics one-to-one with the founders we're six months in so we've done two growth mm-hmm. diagnostic reviews with any of the founders who signed up right at the beginning as we launched uh, right. earlier in, in 23 um, the reality and the anecdotal feedback is this is game changing this is exactly what we need this is missing uh, i could get some of these areas of uh, help but there's an element of luck there's a huge amount of work to find a fractional CFO that I can rate and trust who understands a business at my stage and its approach to Series A. There's a whole load of learning. I could probably sit on YouTube watching free courses and try and figure out if that's the optimum approach to refining my go-to-market strategy post-Series A. But why would right. I? So the feedback has been that the uh, feedback from founders has been that the sort of integrated approach is really useful. From VCs, we've seen our first couple of deals done now where investors in the community are able to fast track companies in the community because the touch points they're having with them are more frequent and the conversation doesn't begin with, would you like to give me five million pounds? So ask me again in six months. And they're better prepared because you've also done some of that. Yeah, you've done some of that diligence for those those investors as well. I mean, you've you've prepared them. That's right, and it's a highly selective. It, we've got a horrible phrase for which is we're kind of inclusive and exclusive. <laughs> I, I don't know how we communicate that well, but uh, we kind of want this to be open to to everybody that has got a UK tech business, one to ten million revenue, and high growth mode with an ambition to to grow and probably raise funding in the next twelve to eighteen months. Uh, but we don't want to let dross in. We don't want to let uh, companies that aren't going to achieve that growth that are always going to be uh, ultimately a no to a VC because it's kind of a waste of everybody's time and our focus is on giving growth and investment support which means there kind of has to be a, an inclination that investment might feature so um, because of that we've been very selective about the companies that we accept into the community and that to your point about from a VC's perspective means there's a bit of a kite mark that these are companies with with a good degree of, um, of opportunity and potential from a team who've worked on over a billion pounds worth of deals historically, which we have. So we kind of know what, what good looks like from a company's perspective, and we kind of know what good looks like from a VC's perspective. VenturePath just makes that a rolling community and series of conversations rather than a sort of dysfunctional, distracting, um, transactional process. If you're a founder listening to this show now, thinking this sounds like a great uh, help to, to raising money, what are the uh, indicators or where do you need to be as a business to qualify for entry into this, I wouldn't say exclusive club, but certainly selective club uh, to help you with that raise? I mean, ultimately, we're, we've got stated 
criteria and you can check it out on joinventurepath.com and, it, and you'll read all of the common things that you'd expect to see you've got to be north of a million revenue you've got to have good growth characteristics you've got to be ambitious yeah. uh in terms of the, the plans that you're bringing together uh within tech we're pretty broad it's quite a quite a broad church um but within that it, it would probably exclude things that have got a huge reliance on professional services and consulting and things that will depress valuation ultimately yes um however let me give you a more interesting answer, Phil, because I know you like interesting answers more than stock answers. So we're looking for people who are bright enough and humble enough. That's what it distills down to. You've got to be smart and switched on. Well, kind of should be implied as an entrepreneur. But the reason that's important to us is because we value the power of leadership learning. We value the fact that the founders can draw from the experience uh, that we're providing around them. The absolute proximity is conversations with fellow founders with scale-up experts who've been and advised and helped and helped that achievement uh, historically and previously, and with exited entrepreneurs who've been through the whole journey of building a business right the way through to nine-plus-figure exits. And those uh, those people within the community absolutely implies that you could learn some stuff from them. Now, if you've got all of the answers already and you figured it all out yourself, you probably don't need Venture Path. And do you know what? You probably wouldn't pass our filter because if there's a lack of humility, right. whilst it's great to right. be confident and optimistic, the kind of you know tools of the trade for an entrepreneur, right? You've got to get up and believe the world is wrong and you're going to change it. Otherwise, you'd get a job. You don't need to go through all of that pressure and you get a pension, right? Um, but for the um, founders who are driven and opinionated, that's all well and good. But just with that degree of humility to be able to listen from other people who've maybe got, got gone through the stage that they're at or have got to the stage they want to get to, and being able to draw from that is key. And so that's the kind of, um, that blend of being bright enough because you've got to be able to take on learning and humble enough that you're sort of willing to take on learning. Um, and so that's that's what we're really looking for. And I, I think all of that hints at founders who understand that, you know, walking a path that somebody else has already walked a hundred times before uh, is probably not the best use of their time and energy. They can get access to the guidance that of those who've gone before and that is absolutely the case with the trillions of capital that's been deployed through venture capital in the UK into growing early stage businesses particularly tech in the last 10-15 years so it, it is a well-trodden path for us it is new ground for a founder a right right-minded founder will hopefully spot that therein lies the opportunity right if you can shorten uh shorten the curve if you can reduce the steepness of the the learning um, curve if you don't have to do it all on your feet on the job where the risk to you is pretty severe of getting distracted for too long and not raising investment is probably an existential challenge for your business's survival if you don't get it right then you know maybe there's an easier mm -hmm. way and that's what we've, we've spent uh, the last uh, x uh, amount of months and, and years really building to create within venture path Great. Well, I think it's a phenomenal initiative, Ian, and uh, I'm really glad to be part of it. I mean, this is a great opportunity to talk a little bit more uh, about it. Where can founders find more information and, and join the community? I mean, by reaching out to our community of experts, like your good self, Phil, I'm sure you're very accessible and everybody uh, following your Behind Startup Lines podcast is is going to kind of know where to find you. So that's always a good a good proxy, guys. If you're listening, uh, come in through somebody who knows us. You get bumped to the front of the queue, don't you? Phil says, "Look, this, this is a company I've come across. I think they're pretty good. Uh, yeah. They're going to they're going to get uh, you know right to the uh, right to the assessment phase really quickly." Um, 
Otherwise, we're really open and approachable. You know, joinventurepath.com is our website. It's got two, uh, two different forms on there. One if you're a founder, one if you're an ecosystem person who wants to get involved. Um, and beyond that, uh, send, send me a one-line message on, on LinkedIn, you know, as part of your connection request as, as a reason to why. Um, we want to find great companies who want to make themselves uh, able to utilise the support that already exists in the UK scale-up landscape, but is scattered and not easy to find and it's hard to wade through. We've packaged all of that up to make that as simple as possible for our founders to get to the growth that they want to achieve and unlock the funding that they need. And that is is as simple as that, really. And I think the preamble with my Great. my own personal background that we talked about earlier, Phil, is part of the reason we're able to do that is because we've spent a long time in this space and we've built strong relationships doing all of the things that are hard and difficult for founders and we're trying to share that learning as a community and with and for the founders themselves. Well, there's a lot that we could continue talking about, In um, We didn't go too deeply on the go-to-market strategy, uh, some of the other areas, and I think that's a conversation for another day. But to wrap up, I have a bit of a tradition where I ask a few quick-fire questions that have a bit of a military theme associated with building a business, hence the name behind Startup Lines. Um, I'd love to run these through you quickly. Pretty short answers. Standing to attention. Yep, standing to attention. You ready for this? Yep. Good stuff. Okay, look, you've designed many successful uh, startup boot camps. Um, What are the three essential drills that you would encourage founders to be conducting as they build early momentum? Customer insight. Constant customer insight. It has to be completely informed by by customer conversations early on. Uh, don't forget the right. importance of sales. Sales is where the rubber meets the road. It's where your idea turns into a business. It's where your business turns into a sustainable business. It's where your sustainable business turns into an investment opportunity for a venture backable business. So sales is is integral. And thirdly, keep an eye on cash. Uh, not understanding appropriate financial management when the numbers are tight, it will kill your business. So they would be my top three. Great, great answer. Uh, when navigating the battlefield of the business world, what's your go-to strategy for outmaneuvering a competitor? Shoot first, ask questions later. I'm trying to keep your uh, your vague military team there. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think people are too polite in England, in, in the UK. I think we're too polite about our competitors. Right. I think you want to kill your competition before they kill you. So... Uh, without you're not going to rubbish them you're not going to talk them down but understand what they do know thy enemy uh, deconstruct it imagine it was your business you were running think get into their head get into their mindset and with that you can you can probe into where their weaknesses might be and don't be afraid to go fast to outmaneuver them once you you've got some conviction once you've got some traction say you want a client away from a from a, a competitor go after all of their clients lead with the fact that uh, other other people like you uh, used to use our competition. Now they've moved over to using us because we're better. Do you want to? Do you want to call? Do you want a demo? Um, be aggressive. Be be aggressive. Shoot first. Ask questions later. Don't be too polite. Don't be too reverential. Now at a ecosystem level, at conferences, absolutely high five them and talk about industry trends. But ultimately, it's it's a it's a kill or be killed scenario. Great answer. Thank you. Last question. In military terms, a commander's intent outlines the desired end state of an operation. What would you say the commander's intent should be for a startup that's seeking investment? 
be clear on your end game. So is it that you want to build a huge pile of cash? It, maybe that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, uh, but is it that you want to change the world in some way? Is it that you want to change the, the way your industry operates for the better? Is it that you're planning a lifestyle business ultimately? Is it that you're planning a, a, a dynasty that you can pass down to your kids, to intergenerations? Uh, be really clear on that because that helps become your sort of guiding principle across a multitude of smaller decisions that you'll be making every single day. And if you're not clear on that end goal, uh, then you will make the wrong decisions because you'll be distracted by today's priority as opposed to the year five, year seven, year 10 priority. And that is useful in the, in the approach right. to investment, but it's probably also as useful in the approach to building a business irrespective of investment. Great advice, Ian. Thank you. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining me on the show. I'm looking forward to seeing what Venture Path is able to achieve and being part of that over the coming years. Uh, here's to the next decade of working together. I can't wait to see where it goes. All the best. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Phil. Thanks for having me today. Bye for now. Wow, what an enlightening conversation with Ian. His dual perspective as both an advisor and entrepreneur made for an invaluable discussion, especially around the nuances of fundraising. Ian's advice on how to properly qualify investors could be a game changer for any founder looking to align with the right backers. We also explored the often under-discussed aspect of balancing the time-intensive fundraising process while maintaining daily operations and customer engagement, a balancing act that every founder needs to master. If this episode has given you something to think about, I'd appreciate it if you could rate it and perhaps even share it with someone in your network who could benefit from Ian's insights. That wraps it up for today. Keep innovating, keep building, and as always, let's keep this important conversation going. This is your host, Phil Guest, signing off from Behind Startup Lines. Until next time, over and out.